I have noticed that we are obsessed with the greatest. We're obsessed with the greatest. We talk about the goat, greatest of all time. It is not good enough to be very good. It is not good enough to be exceptional. The debate must be who is the greatest of all time. And so even as I say things, you probably have names that will pop into your head and the debate on who that's with, right? Greatest basketball player of all time. And you probably have an idea, an opinion of who that is and who the debate is between. Who's the greatest soccer player of all time? Who's the greatest quarterback of all time? Who's the greatest athlete of all time? Greatest swimmer of all time? Greatest gymnast? Greatest golfer? Greatest guitarist? Greatest composer? I mean, we could just go on and on. In fact, we, we have a, a group called the Guinness Group, right? They, they put together world records so that we can know. If you want to know who's the greatest about anything, they have verified who the greatest is. You want to know who made the greatest longest pizza, not to be confused with largest pizza, you can look it up. Either one of those is on Guinness. You can look up uh, who has juggled the most balls at any one time and how many they juggled in for how long. You can find out what is the largest hayride of all time. The largest hayride was achieved by 639 participants at the Northwest Washington Fair in Linden, Washington, and organized by my cousin. What? Which is how I knew to look it up. <laughs> we are obsessed with the greatest, and it turns out that we have been obsessed with the greatest for a long, long time. In fact, as Jesus has been walking with his disciples and he's been in northern Israel and teaching and explaining to them who he is and what they're going to be doing, he says, we're going down to Jerusalem and when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to have to die there and then in three days be raised from the dead. And as they are headed that direction and with that still in their minds, okay, we're going down there and surely when we get to Jerusalem now, the kingdom of heaven is going to come. And so at that time, it says, Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? I mean, we know, we know there are some really great ones in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus. Is it going to be one of us? Is it going to be one of us disciples who's been with you, hanging out with you? I mean, I, I'm watching and I'm, I'm seeing uh, Peter and James and John. They seem to be in the lead right now. They're the closest ones. They're the, they're the ones that are closest to you. And maybe, is it going to be Peter? Is it gonna, he, he's really out front. Is Peter going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is it John? You seem to love him the most. Is it John? Is he the greatest in heaven? Or is it not even one of us? Is it like one of the, one of the prophets? Is it Elijah or Moses? It, it's Moses, isn't it? He's the greatest of all time. Yeah, greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Who, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Was it John the Baptist, maybe? Who, who is it? At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest? In the kingdom of heaven. And calling to him a child, 
he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. That took a turn, didn't it? I mean, they're all feeling pretty good about themselves. We are the the intimate, closest people to Jesus. We have given up everything to walk with him. We have been uh, preaching in his name. We have been healing people and casting out demons. We've been with him, and we are now headed with him to Jerusalem. And we're thinking probably one of us is pretty great. At least all of us are really good. But probably one of us is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven or will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so they ask him about that, who which of us is the greatest, and and Jesus does this. Jesus looks around and goes, hey kid, come here. Yeah, this is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) Talk about put them in their place. Which of us is the greatest? I, I, I think it's you. No, I think it's me. I think it. You want to know who the greatest is? Come here, kid. Yep, this kid. This kid's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In fact, unless, in, it, unless you are very careful and you repent of this kind of attitude, you won't even make it. That's a sobering thought. That here these disciples have been walking with Jesus and in their arrogance and pride thinking that they in and of themselves have become something or are becoming something that they are in danger of not making it in at all. Jesus says, you want to know who's the greatest? Guys, let's see if you can even finish the race. Let's see if you can even make it in. Because this attitude that you've got going on here, this is not going to help you get into the kingdom of heaven. I think you don't understand the kingdom of heaven if you're thinking, which of us is going to be the greatest? Because do you understand, guys, that this kid, this kid is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You have to be like him. You have to be like this kid. Calling a child to him, he put him in the midst and he said to them, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, how am I going to be like that kid? How am I going to be like that kid? I have to humble myself like this kid. Now, at this time, kids did not have much place in society. They were there. They didn't mean anything until they were old enough to do something. They didn't matter. They were just kids there in the background until they became adults or until they could contribute to the family in some way or until they could be something. They were just there. 
And Jesus says, no, you need to be like this. You need to be a nobody in the crowd. You need to have a place of position and humility that understands you are getting in by the grace of God and not by your merits. Look, guys, I don't know if you understand this, you fishermen and tax collectors, you bunch of riffraff that I have collected together to walk with me and follow me. I did not pick you because of your great skills. I did not walk around and look at you and say to myself, he looks like he'd be able to perform miracles. I should have him follow me. When I was putting together this team, I was not putting together the all-stars. You're special because I picked you. I didn't pick you because you were special. And yet somehow it had gotten to their heads. They had seen the crowds. They had seen the people rejoicing in who Jesus was and what he was doing. And they had, by uh, proximity and association with him, began to feel as though they themselves were something. And Jesus wants them to know that is not the case. Guys, you don't need to worry about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You just need to worry about getting in. Just worry about getting in. Because once you're in, it doesn't matter who's the greatest. That's the reality of it. Once you're in, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Is Michael Jordan better or LeBron James better? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Whenever they do the comparisons, Wilt, they're like, they're the best since Wilt Chamberlain. And I go, how come he's not the greatest? And what difference does it make? They were all great basketball players that have had great impact on the sport and on their teams. But here he's saying, all you have to do is get in. Once you're in, you're the greatest. But you don't get in by being the greatest. You get in by being humble. In fact, he says, whoever receives one such child like this, whoever receives one such child in my name, receives me. Guys, do you want to know how great you are? Let's check your humility. How likely were you to receive this kid? How likely were you to watch for this kid, take care of this kid? Say hello to this kid. Help out this kid. Were you going to pay any attention at all? Because if you don't pay any attention to the lowest, you're not really paying any attention to me. You don't really understand my mission and what I'm about. 
because I have come for the lowest of the low. And I have come to welcome them in. And so, guys, guys, along with me, welcome them in. And as we're looking at this and and thinking about the the challenges that the disciples had with their pride and the need that they have for humility, I then start to evaluate myself and would invite you to evaluate yourselves as well and say, okay, what are those places, when are those times at which your pride is getting in the way? And if I use Jesus' example here, where Jesus said, okay, guys, I want you to know that you have to receive a little kid like this. Then I start to think, okay, when are the times when I don't receive somebody? When are the times that I feel like I'm too good for them? I don't have time for them. I don't have patience for them. I'm not going to welcome them. Put up with them even. One of the times that I'm trying to have a conversation and I don't have patience for somebody interrupting and asking questions because this conversation is really above you. I don't want to explain it to you so that you can pretend to take part in this conversation. This conversation is above you. We're having an adult conversation here. But it's not just with kids, right? I mean, the things that I just said, you can see how that relates to kids, but that happens in other contexts too. Where in your pride you feel like, oh, I don't have time, or I don't want to take time to explain to you I am impatient right now because you are not coming up to my level or the level at which I think is acceptable. Sometimes I even find myself in line at the store and I go, how can a person not know how to check out groceries? It's self-check. If you don't get it, go to the other line. And it's my attitude that reveals to me my pride and arrogance rather than my humility. Because you know what my first response is? Get out of my way and let somebody through who knows how to do it. Beep, 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 I'm done. That's my, that's my initial response. Rather than one that would be humble, which might be, can I help you with that? And Jesus is saying, guys, we have to have an attitude like this child. In fact, if you're not receiving somebody like this, you have a pride and arrogance problem. You need humility. In fact, he says, whoever, verse 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. That is graphic. 
A millstone is a, a huge piece of rock that would be used to grind grain. It's a huge piece of rock that he's saying, it would be better for you. If you become an offense, a stumbling block, cause someone like this, a young person, to not enter into the kingdom because you are an offense to them or are causing problems to them, you're tripping them up on their way into heaven, it would be better for you to have a huge stone tied to your neck and have you tossed into the sea. We've actually seen this word before, not in English. The, the English word is different. It says temptations. But in a previous verse, when it said, Jesus said to Peter, so that we won't be an offense to them, let's go ahead and pay the temple tax. It was this same word. Here we see it as a, a temptation, Whoever causes one of these little ones to sin. That's how it's translated here. Whoever causes them to sin or whoever gives offense to them. Again, who scandalizes them. Whoever might scandalize them. And cause them to not enter into the kingdom of heaven and having just seen this a few verses ago, what Jesus was trying to do in his paying of the temple tax, even though he had told Peter, I don't have to pay the temple tax. I'm the son of God. I don't need to pay the temple tax. But so that I don't cause offense to them, so that I don't put a stumbling block in their way to keep them from understanding who I am and entering into the kingdom of heaven, we're going to pay the tax. And now he's saying, in fact... If anybody causes any reason for someone to not enter into the kingdom of heaven, you're making it more difficult for them and tripping them up. It would be better for you if you tied a big rock to your neck and were thrown into the sea. So when their question had been, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He said, it's not important who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, but I'll tell you what's the worst. The worst thing that you could do is keep somebody from getting in. If that's the worst thing you could do. Woe, he says to the, in verse 7, woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. There are trials, there are tests, there are temptations in this world that incline us to sin. Things that tempt us that we go, ah, I want to do that. That lead us away from following God. There are those temptations around us. They're necessary. They, they challenge us. In fact, in James chapter 1, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfast. And let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. There will be times of testing and temptation in your life that challenge you and your faith and it refines your faith along the way. 
It is in the allure of those things and recognizing in those temptations towards sin that they do not fulfill us, that we see the glory of God. And we recognize how wonderful and amazing he is. It is in the contrast between the deficiencies that we get when we sin, the things that we thought would bring us pleasure and leave us empty every time, and compare that to the glory of God which satisfies. The presence of sin and temptation to sin in the world highlights for those of us who believe how glorious and great God is. It is necessary for them to be in the world. But woe to the one who tempts someone else to sin that leads them astray and away from the glories of God. We need to take sin very seriously. That's what he's saying. We need to take it very seriously. Woe to the one who would tempt someone to sin. Why is it so awful? If someone is a young believer in Jesus or is... uh, considering belief in Jesus and then is led away from him instead? Why is that so serious? Why is that the worst? It is because sin is so awful and so dangerous. It's because sin is so serious. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law... For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. However, Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, while those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. In Romans chapter 8, Paul puts these two different ways before us, the one that leads to death and the one that leads to life. 
the one in flesh and sin, the other in spirit and righteousness and truth. And those who follow the way of sin cannot please God. They have no desire to please God, and they are unable to please God. And so they must be transformed. It is so serious to deal with the sin and say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that sin. I want to live in righteousness. I want to follow God. I want to put the sin away and live in the Spirit and follow Him instead. It is so important that we do that, that Jesus, when we, if we go back to Matthew chapter 8, puts it this way. Verse 8 of chapter, eight, uh, chapter 18. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. We take great precautions to protect our body parts. We use safety glasses when we are working uh, with tools, right? And you wear gloves so that you protect your fingers. We have guardrails on things so that we can protect life and limb. We are very, very cautious. We have all kinds of standards and things so that OSHA will come in and say, whoa, we're going to shut this down because this is not a safe environment. We put on the wall, it has been this many days since anybody has injured themselves in this facility. Because we take the preservation of our body parts very, very seriously. They're part of our body. It's important to us. I've only got 10 fingers. I don't want to lose one. I've only got two eyes. I don't want to lose one. I am going to protect them. And yet what Jesus says here is, yes, we have great value in our body and we want to protect our body, but the spirit and the soul is so much more important. You're better just chopping it off and getting rid of it if it's causing you to sin. If your hand is leading you astray, you just chop that thing off and throw it away. As though it was cancerous and it's going to contaminate and infect the whole body. We don't want to deal with that anymore. We're just going to chop it off, throw it away, and be done with it. Because we don't want to be in the world of sin anymore. We want to be in the world of righteousness. And if something is tempting us, tantalizing us, pulling us back over here, let's chop it off so that we're free. Like an animal that has been uh, trapped will chew its appendage off so that it can save its life. We need to have that same kind of desperation when it comes to sin. My eyes are causing me to sin. My hands are causing me to sin. My ears are causing me to sin. I need to chop those off and move on. And yet... We have a problem. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Now, the righteousness of God has been made manifest apart from the law, 
though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, here's what Paul is saying in the book of Romans. Everybody has a sin problem. Everybody has a sin problem. There is no one who does not sin. What are we going to do about that? I can hand you a knife and you can start chopping things off, but we have this problem. Everyone sins. There is no one who is righteous before God. You don't have enough body parts to cut off. You cannot cut off enough body parts to then be able to enter righteously into the kingdom of God. Even if we take sin very seriously and we say, okay, I'm going to chop off everything that causes me to sin, we will have nothing left because of our inclination towards sin. And so this is the good news that Paul gives us in Romans. While all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. So while Jesus tells us we must take sin so seriously and not worry about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, just recognize that getting in at all is the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. And in order to do that, we must flee all temptation and sin and walk in his righteousness and need to take sin so seriously that we cut off body parts to keep us from sinning. That's what Jesus said. And then Jesus, recognizing that we couldn't do it, said, since you don't have enough body to cut off, I'm going to offer mine. So great is his love for you. So great is his love for you, and so great is his desire that there would be nothing, nothing that would keep you from entering into the kingdom of heaven. That he said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to recognize that your sin is separating you from God, and I'm going to take that seriously, and so I'm going to offer my entire body in exchange for yours. I am going to offer my body to be maimed and crucified 
so that you might live in righteousness and be free to enter into the kingdom of God. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins, and it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Take it all together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we recognize that uh, we do not deserve to enter into your presence. We recognize that we are not the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, nor do we deserve to enter at all. And so, Lord, we, like children in great need, come to you and ask, would you forgive us of our sin? Would you forgive us of our sin because Jesus has already paid the penalty of death for it and has offered us his righteousness? And so, Lord, we ask for this in his name. Amen.